Okay, I've got double duty this morning, so got the piano and the prayers. So join with me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be able to gather today with this Sunday school class and um, enjoy the fellowship of each other. And we're so thankful for all the blessings that you have blessed us with. We thank you for Phil. We ask you to open our minds and ears and hearts today that we may learn more how to serve and follow you. And we just pray as we go into the Christmas season that we remember the reason for Christmas and that we don't get all uh, stressed out over things that don't really matter. And we just ask you to be with us this week, lead and guide us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. faithful remnant after Thanksgiving. <laughs> Carol, are you allowed to sit in this section? <laughs> no. Only because I'm taking notes. Okay, I'm really disoriented here. It's worse than my students. I mean, they, they get really upset if they come in and they, somebody else is sitting in their seat. It's so funny. You know, if I assign seats, it would be like outrage. If they assign themselves seats, and uh, it's very funny. Get such a kick out of it. So we are creatures of habit. I ho I hope and trust you had a good Thanksgiving. Um, we did as well. Uh, all the children were home, so that's always fun. We actually had to have a meal together. That was great. So not not only were they all home, they were all home together. And so uh, it took some coordination, but it was it was great. And. In keeping with the Thanksgiving season, we are uh, wrapping up the social principles today. And um, <laughs> so I give thanks for your for your patience. I didn't go back and count how many weeks it's been. Um, a lot, um, a lot. And uh, so I appreciate your patience. We've there. There's obviously more to say. If nothing else, I hope you leave the series uh, aware that there is such a thing called the United Methodist Social Principles. Um, they're in the process of being revised, of all of them, and so um, you know, next year you can do it again. We can do it again. You know, I'm not going to do it again, but somebody else, you know, maybe Jason can do it again. <laughs> You miss most of this one, so you don't, you don't even know where the landmines are, I can tell you. <laughs> Although you could probably guess. <laughs> Go ahead and put it on the calendar so we can get a long vacation. Ever, yeah. <laughs> long vacation. <laughs> could you do a comparison of the old ones? Yeah, we could do that. Yeah, a comparison. Yeah. So, but today we are gonna we are gonna finish up and then um, do some. As I said last week, some Adventy things during Advent. Because um, today's the last Sunday of the church year, which is always disorienting if you're used to the calendar year. But as you know, um, the church year begins in Advent. Uh, so next Sunday will be the first Sunday of the church year. 
Um, which means this Sunday is the last Sunday of the church year. Uh, it goes by a couple of names, either Christ the King or the Reign of Christ the King Sunday. And um, that's appropriate. It's to be reminded um, of where uh, this whole story is going, right? We begin Advent by preparing um, for the coming of Jesus and ultimately as Handel's Messiah reminds us, right? He will reign forever and ever, right? And ever and ever and ever, right? And so, and the, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord, right? And so this last Sunday of the church year is to remind us where ultimately all, where all the story is going. So the reason we have the church year is really in just one year, we sort of rehearse the whole story, right? The whole story, the whole Christian story. Um, and this is the last Sunday, and it's a powerful Sunday. It's, in some ways, it can kind of get lost in the Thanksgiving to Christmas shuffle. Uh, but it's a powerful reminder that, as Lori prayed in her prayer, that we're all seeking to offer ourselves to God to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ um, and to love God and love our neighbor. Uh, and the reason we're called to do that is because this is the Lord we worship and serve who we believe has the last word and we believe um, this is where all history is going. And so we're called in some imperfect way as the church to live in anticipation of that. We are a kind of living witness of the direction the world is supposed to go. Not because we've got it perfect, but we're called to live as a, as a sign and a foretaste of what God desires of all of creation. And so this is the way, the way of Jesus is the way of the world. And this is why we, we care about the social principles, not because uh, they stand on their own uh, as policy, but they, they are the, the United Methodist Church, um, broken as the United Methodist Church, because every church is broken, right? Because they're made up of broken people, right? But it's the United Methodist Church's attempt to try to give some guidance both to us and to those who will listen about what in our day, what following the way of Jesus might entail. And it requires discernment. And um, the first Sunday we did this, I said that I was pretty sure, but what I hope you would listen for, I don't know if you remember this, I said what I hope you would listen for are, are three things. One would be some things that the social principles have that you felt confirmed about. You felt like, I'm so glad the United Methodist Stand Church affirms that. Uh, way of following the way of Jesus, because I've always thought that, that in included that. Um, and there's, it's hard to imagine. If you, if you read the whole thing, I don't know if you did, but um, if you read the whole thing, it would be hard, I think it would be hard to find, uh, not find a number of places where you said, yes. Um, I also said there'd probably be some places where you'd be challenged, right, to think, have to think about that. I have to think about why my brothers and sisters in Christ uh, 
think that this is entailed in following the way of Jesus. And then I also said you might be uh, surprised uh, in the fact that I just never really thought about that at all. Um, that that the following the way of Jesus might have something to do with that, um, like water, right? Um, who who thought that uh, you know one-time use plastic bottles had anything to do with Jesus? I mean, the connect the, the dots don't easily connect, right? Um, and so those were the kinds of things. So my hunch is, I'm hoping that all of you found some of that. And today, in the spirit of Christ the King, we actually have two short sections here. One on the political community and the last one uh, on the world community. And I thought in the spirit of Christ the King Sunday, we would start with this short three-page chapter at the very end on the world community and then finish with politics, because, I mean, it's what you all avoided at Thanksgiving, so I thought we should not leave, yeah. But here we're talking the political community, of course, when we get there, just to remind you, politics here is understood in its classical sense, not in its partisan sense. Um, politics is, is the art of how a, any people orders its life together. Um, most people who live together have to have some order. So, in the classical sense, your household has a politics, right? It has a way that it's ordered. Um, and sometimes you have to work to carry out that order. But any group of people, my classroom has a politics. Milligan College has a politics, right? And so we're, we're talking about it in the broadest sense, not politics in the sense of, you know, which party you affiliate with. It's not that. That's a much narrower set of questions. Okay. But this last page, um, page last section, last few pages, uh, in the world community, this is on page 57, if you're following along, it starts off with this very simple claim. God's world is one world. Okay. God's world is one world. Welcome. <laughs> we thought we should say welcome because everyone just realized the average age just dropped by about a decade. <laughs> so thank you. We're feeling young. We're feeling younger already. So this is Embrys, uh, right? Late. No, no, it's perfect. The world community, the first sentence, God's world is one world, right? Um, just as Jesus will reign over all, this claim that God's world is one world is where it begins. And it's interesting that the social principles ends by an allusion to John Wesley, as it ought to, right? Where it talks about, we affirm, that's the last sentence, of the, so, of the social principles. We affirm our historic concern, as United Methodists, for the world as our parish, and seek for all persons and people full and equal membership as a truly world community. You recall that John Wesley um, 
famously stated that the whole world was his parish, right? In a, in a time when the system, there was a system, a parish system, um, he refused to sort of stay between the lines. You know, lines sort of like railroad tracks. <laughs> yeah. So, just perfect timing. Yeah. And uh, so he didn't allow that to be limiting to him in his own work as a minister and as an evangelist. And this notion that the whole world is our parish, uh, that there is only one world, God's world. And so this last section talks a little bit about nations and cultures, uh, the power and responsibility that nations have. And it sort of alludes to the principle uh, that Jesus talks about in, in Luke 12, 48, that uh, those to whom much is given, much is expected, right? Um, and so to those nations, I mean, we are, uh, I don't think it's arguable at this point. Uh, you and I live in the most powerful, influential nation on the planet. Uh, and that, with that comes responsibility in trying to figure out what that means. Um, and how do Christians think about that? Right? How do Christian citizens um, think about that? Um, tries to say a few things about that, that there's a high responsibility uh, when you are a leader on the world stage. It also talks briefly about uh, war and peace in the world community. Um, this also comes up in the political community section uh, with re respect to military service. Um, but it talks about the ways in which um, we follow the Prince of Peace and that uh, war should not be a common, uh, a common practice with any uh, nation, um, that conflicts should try to be reconciled uh, short of war. Um, it talks about justice and law in the world community, which is a tricky thing, right? Um, how do you adjudicate disagreements between nations? Uh, it's been a long-standing <laughs> challenge. Um, but the, it's the shortest section of, of the social principles. And we're not going to linger much there, but I did want you to at least know that it is, it is there. And United Methodists have tried to say something about what it means, because the United Methodist Church is itself. Uh, just like the church, giant C, large C, right? There, there is one church, just as is, there is one world, there is one church. And not just the one United Methodist Church, there is one United Methodist Church, and it's a global church. Right, it is a global church. Uh, but the, the Church of Jesus Christ, there is one church. And it's all around the world. And how do we think about that uh, if our loyalty to God and to the Church of Christ is our primary loyalty? Which is where the political community section starts. So if you, if you flip back to page 52, the two of you who have it, um, <laughs> Do you want that? No, no. 
I'll just read the first paragraph. Uh, this is on page 52, uh, first paragraph of the political community. While our allegiance to God, while our allegiance to God takes precedence over our allegiance to any state, we acknowledge the vital function of government as a principal vehicle for the ordering of society. Because we know ourselves to be responsible to God for social and political life, we declare the following relative to government. So tries to make clear that, yes, our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate allegiance is, is to God. Um, we also have other lesser allegiances to our political communities of which we are a part and which we believe and trust in some, again, imperfect way, uh, God uses for our good by bringing some measure of order to our common life. And so Christians who are citizens of those uh, states, those nations, have some moral responsibility about the shape of them. Um, and for them to be, best as possible, ordered according uh, accordingly to the values that we share. And so, again, we're not going to try to cover all of this. There's not a lot. There's four or five pages. But just to kind of give you a couple of, of issues that they talk about, um, there's a section on church and state relations, as you might expect. Right? How, is, how do the church and the state um, how do they work together? And, and what's the relationship between them? And the United Methodist Social Principles affirms um, the sort of classic separation of church and state in American society, uh, says that that's good both for the state and for the church, right? That religious liberty uh, thrives best uh, when the state is, when you don't have a state church, uh, when the state is not the one that's directing the church, and also when the church isn't directing the state, when these are independent of each other. Um, it also makes clear that the separation of church and state does not mean that there, uh, can't, there can't be mutual influence, and it certainly doesn't mean that, it's, that there's not room for um, religious liberty and the expression of religion. And so it's a, it's a pretty measured and balanced uh, account of church and state relationships. Um, this also talks about the right to education, um, talks about the, the role and place of uh, civil disobedience, um, talks about the fact that even though our loyalties, um, because our loyalties are first of all to God, and because all human states are themselves fallen and broken, we cannot give um, just unambiguous assent to everything, right? There, there may be times, and it says they may be limited, where we have to say no uh, to what uh, the state or the government asks of us. Um, and that not just us, but any person of conscience. And so, um, that's, that's a classic Christian position. It comes up in the New Testament, of course. Sometimes we have to obey God rather than man, it famously says in the book of Acts. So this is a, a classic uh, position. Uh, 
that gets affirmed in the social principles, and again, in a pretty balanced way. It also has um, a section, it's just background music, it's kind of like you're in an elevator. <laughs> I thought it was just my students who were so easily distracted. It's like, squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> Focus, focus. <laughs> it has a, uh, it also has a balanced treatment of, of military service. Um, it, it affirms the two classic positions in uh, the Christian tradition. Uh, one, uh, both of which, we should say up front, both of them uh, presume um, against violence. Um, both classic Christian positions uh, presume against violence. One sometimes gets called uh, pacifism. I don't like that term. It comes from pace, uh, the Latin word for peace. It's P-A-C-I-F-I-S-M. When my students spell it, they always uh, spell it passivism, yeah. as if you're being passive, P-A-S-S-I-V-I-S-M. Um, but passivism means to work for peace. Um, passivism means to do nothing. And if you've ever tried to work for peace, it actually requires quite a lot. Um, and that's one, but the, the notion, classic Christian position that the, held, the church held pretty firm for the first three to four centuries, uh, that followers of Jesus weren't allowed to take up, to do violence against anyone. Um, and that was pretty standard fare. Um, things changed late 4th, early 5th century when Christians began to become uh, part of the, uh, to start to have power. And so for the next 1500 years, uh, the church followed more or less some version of what's sometimes called the just war tradition which you may or may not know about, but it, you probably should, because it's, it's the one, it, it's the alternative. But again, the, the, the presumption with the just war tradition is against violence, it, that violence is only possible for Christians under very strict conditions, right, as a state actor. And so uh, we won't rehearse all of those, but there have to do with things uh, like there has to be a just cause. I mean, there's sort of two kinds of criteria. It's the kinds of, there's a certain set of criteria, Christian criteria about what has to be in place before you can actually go to war. Then there's another set of criteria about what has to happen during war, right? So a certain kind of war to be declared a war has to be a certain kind of war to be a just war, but it also has to be engaged in in a certain kind of way to be a just war. Uh, so you can have a just cause, but then wage it unjustly, and that makes it an unjust war. Okay, and so uh, there's actually so when I say the presumption is against violence, it's intended to restrict violence. Um, and historians debate about how many wars that our country or other country has engaged in that meet those criteria. Um, but the fact that we have them, the fact that they uh, they often are taught in the service academy even today, uh, says that they, it is a tradition that's alive and well. 
And I mention that because it says those who engage in military service as Christians or consider it, um, it affirms both of those positions. That people can in good conscience uh, refuse military service because they don't believe that following the way of Jesus allows any room for doing violence against even their enemies since Jesus told us uh, to love our enemies. Uh, and there are those, there's also a tradition that says um, that in unusual circumstances, uh, there might be times when even Christians might take up arms um, in limited situations. Um, and says both of those are honorable, both should be honored uh, by the church. And so um, it tries to, to do justice to both of those uh, traditions. What I thought we might say, it also has a, a really helpful discussion of restorative justice that we may come back to at some point because there are people in the room that know a lot more about restorative justice than I do. Um, but it's a, a fascinating development over the last several decades uh, that has moved um, away from thinking, trying to move away from thinking that the only kind of justice worthy of the name is what in sort of classic legal terms is called retributive justice, like retribution. A lot of us, when we think of the word justice, we think of retribution, right? Someone getting what we think is due to them, usually in the form of some type of punishment. Um, but classically, if you go back and even look in the, the, the Christian tradition, um, justice was always understood to be restorative it was intended to restore the person to full community. That was the aim of justice. Um, and so you might be surprised to find out that uh, the prison system, actually early, the earliest prison system was modeled on the monasteries, Christian monasteries. Uh, even the language of cells, I mean, the monks had cells. Um, but there was there were certain ways of, of of monks being disciplined in the monastery, but it was always intended to restore them to full community in the Christian in the Christian community. It was retribution. Punishment was never its own end. It wasn't just to set the scales of justice. Even it wasn't just to sort of make sure things were fair. It was it had a restorative purpose. And there's been an interesting movement in the United States and other places to try to think about what it would mean for our justice system to have at least a place for something that looked more like restorative justice. And so um, some of you uh, know Claire Loveless well. Um, she went through some of the formal training and was a mediator here locally. And I don't, some of you probably know more of the story behind it. I've talked with her a couple times about it because I was interested in what she was doing. Um, but there are places for, for people to, to be advocates and mediators. And part of what it does, just very quickly, part of what it tries to do is, um, in, in criminal cases, is to, is to bring victims and those who, um, Call them criminals, right? Criminals and the victims together 
and try to figure out one, because I mean, one of the things that people say is frustrating about the criminal justice system is that there's often, sometimes I don't even hardly ever see the perpetrator, right? Or have a conversation, but sometimes there's a chance to sort of bring them together and also bring other people together who have a stake in whatever uh, wrong, whatever harm was done. And, and to mediate that and to figure out, one, to give the, the person, uh, the perpetrator, a chance to make amends where that's possible, right? Directly to the victim, right? And so it's, it's an attempt to actually honor both the victim and somewhat of the dignity of the perpetrator by giving them a chance to, to, uh, to make restoration where that's possible, right? And also to um, ask, uh, to, to show remorse in a personal way. Um, it's, it's intended to be a kind of humanizing process um, rather than just an antagonistic system which much of the legal system is set up as. Much more to say there, and again, more, a lot more people in the room who know more about it and can speak more definitively about it. But it does have a section on that, where it tries, it tries to affirm uh, the need for that. And it tries to support and encourage uh, the United Methodist Church to support efforts in that way. And just to remind you, because people like Claire Levelas, I mean, she, she was, and I don't know if she still is, um, but certainly part of that, and I'm sure there are other people um, in the Johnson City area who are not just advocates, but who, who work, about, work on this, and um, Mike Easters can probably tell you more than you want to know um, about a lot of things, but including um, restorative justice. So that brings us uh, to two last things. We'll, we'll, we'll try to deal with these maybe five minutes each because um, I haven't gotten in trouble yet at all, I don't think, or at least not nearly enough. Um, let me ask you this question. Uh, so it has, it has a paragraph, uh, just a paragraph, on, on the death penalty. Okay. Um, and the restorative justice comes right after that. So this is the paragraph before. And here's... And this is a rhetorical question. I mean, it's one of these questions that, you know, it's always dangerous to ask because somebody's going to try to answer it, so I'll try. Um, but if I talk, I, in a perfect world, I'd give, you an answer, I'd give you an hour to give me your answers. But just do the thought experiment. Say you were traveling uh, internationally. Say you were traveling um, in Europe. And someone found out you were from the United States. And you were and you were uh, on a bus together, one of those tour buses. And so you were trying to strike up conversation. And they said, can I ask you a question? And, they said, and you said, sure. They said, could you explain to me why the United States, which prides itself on being a Christian nation, uh, could you explain to me why it's one of the few countries left in what most people consider to be the civilized world that carries out capital punishment? Um, I just, I have a hard time connecting those dots. Could you connect them for me? And the question would be, how would you do it? I'm not saying that you couldn't do it, I'd just be curious to know how you would do it. Uh, because for a lot of people, that, that seems at odds. 
Because um, as most of you know, I mean, uh, there are, uh, there's only one country in all of Europe that, that carries out capital punishment, that's Belarus. Um, there's only um, a handful of countries, if, if you don't count little island countries, in the Western Hemisphere, the United States is only one of three or four in the whole Western uh, Hemisphere, uh, not Canada, not Mexico. Um, and if you look at, say, the last 10 years, uh, which countries um, have executed uh, the most people, even though the execution rate in the United States has dropped dramatically, we're still in the top five. And our company is China, Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. And those are not typically the countries we think of ourselves as being, having a whole lot in common with. And so, certainly Christians have argued for, sometimes quite vociferously and proudly, that we do continue to um, carry out capital punishment here. Um, most of you know there are, there are 30 uh, states in the United States who no longer have capital punishment. There are 20 that have capital punishment left. Uh, Tennessee is one of them. Um, yeah, we've already executed two people in 2018. Um, and so there's only six states to have this year. Uh, and we are one. And yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a question that vexes uh, a lot of, a lot of Christians um, about trying to sort through how we support sort of state-sanctioned executions. Many of you know that uh, the Pope caused quite a stir in August uh, when he changed the formal teaching in the Catholic Catechism, which at the time uh, reserved capital punishment sort of theoretically as something that might possibly be the case in extreme, extreme circumstances. Um, but he took out that and says now it's completely incompatible. Church teaching is now it's incompatible. Uh, and that, you know, that raised a bit of a tiff uh, in the Roman Catholic Church as well. And so there's been, a, the reason I'm saying is, is there's been quite a bit of conversation about it over the last several months because it's been on people's minds because of the Pope's uh, pronouncement and, and just our own executions in our state, right? Um, and so the United Methodist social principle um, says this. I'll just read the first sentence. Maybe the last, end the last sentence. We believe the death penalty denies the power of Christ to redeem, restore, and transform all human beings. The United Methodist Church is deeply concerned about crime throughout the world and the value of any life taken by murder or homicide. But we believe all human life is sacred and created by God, and therefore we must see all human life as significant and valuable. 
most of you probably know that one of the reasons that uh, a lot of states and uh, the question about even if you thought in theory that capital punishment was defensible, um, the reason a lot of states have gotten rid of it uh, and a lot of countries got rid of it is it seems almost impossible uh, to actually carry out in any kind of way that's not seemingly arbitrary, discriminatory, or uh, that ends up killing innocent people, right? Um, so for example, last year, in 2017, uh, there were 39 cases, 39 people were sentenced to death in 19, in, in 2017, which is way down. I mean, we used to be two or 300 a year. Now it's down to 39. But to show you that, I mean, it has everything to do with where you live in the world, where you live in the country, okay? Uh, what, almost one third of those 39 cases came from three counties in the United States. Three counties, okay? Three counties. 31% came from three counties. One in, one in California, okay? Um, one in Arizona, one in Nevada, okay? Those Yes, as last year. And so, I don't have to rehearse the statistics about uh, the racial makeup and the, the poverty, right? Uh, the chances of a white rich person like me being sentenced to death is pretty close to zero. Okay, pretty close to zero. Um, which is, so, so this is why a lot of people just have a hard time thinking about it. Because the only person who can bring a death penalty uh, is, is your county district attorney. Okay, your county district attorney has a decision ultimately about whether to, to bring the death penalty. Um, and it's just, it just feels completely arbitrary when most of these come from uh, about 15 counties around the country, which means you know, is that justice if you happen to be in that county, right? Um, so those are some of the questions, okay? We can't resolve all those today, but I'm just trying to, if you want to know why people have squeamishness about it, why they're, why they're worried about whether we should be proud that we do this, we probably should not just look at that we do it, we should probably look at how we do it, and that's what um, even the Supreme Court uh, long ago said that they had questions. You know, there was a little moratorium back in the 70s. You probably remember this. Uh, when the Supreme Court struck down um, capital punishment, several years there, we didn't have it, then it was begun again in 1976. <coughs> um, so there's that. And the last thing I just want to say is um, to go back to the questions about uh, war and peace, one of the things that the political com community says in the very first paragraph under basic freedoms and human rights, it says that, uh, it kind of seems like a strange thing maybe here, it says blockades and embargoes that seek to impede the flow of free commerce of food and medicines 
are practices that cause pain and suffering, malnutrition or starvation, with all its detrimental consequences to innocent and non-combatant civil populations, especially children. We reject these as instruments of domestic and foreign policy, regardless of political or ideological views. <coughs> now, I raise that because it talks about, I mean, that's a, that's a classic uh, issue in the just war tradition is that you can't blockade, okay? You can't have siege warfare because that, that you have to protect non-combatants in a just war. Okay, you have to have what's called non-combatant immunity. And, and I raise that right now just to kind of say, well, why should we care about that? Well, because it's happening right now, um, has been happening for the last three years in Yemen. Um, some of you have heard a little bit about Yemen lately. Most of us, Yemen's the other side of the world, and what do we know about Yemen? Um, I'd hate to think about, myself included, if we like pooled all of our knowledge in this room about Yemen, could we fill a thimble? Uh, I hope we could. I'm just not sure we could. Uh, but it's been, it is the number one humanitarian crisis in the world right now. Okay. A uh, report just came out last week that said in the last three years, probably 85,000 children have starved to death in Yemen, partly as a result of the blockade that the Saudis have put on Yemen. Uh, there's a civil war going on in Yemen. Uh, it's kind of a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and several other countries allied with Saudi Arabia and Iran. And They've closed a lot of the ports. They've bombed a lot of the wells and infrastructure, fields. There's no food there. Most of 90% of the food before the war came in because it's an arid place. It's hard to grow anything there. There's only a few hospitals left in the major strongholds. And they're, four, I mean, they're 20, 28 to 29 million people who live in Yemen. And the UN says half of them are threatened with famine right now. 14 million people, 400,000 children woefully malnutritious, mal suffering from malnutrition. Right? And, and this, this has been going on for three years. And you know, what's our responsibility? We're back to the what's our responsibility as a nation, as Christians? How do we think about that? Um, these are challenging things. And as you know, um, the weapons that have been used to bomb uh, Yemen have come from us. Okay. Um, the Saudis, we, we are the largest arms exporter in the world, and we export them. Our biggest customer is Saudi Arabia. We sell two to three times more arms to Saudi Arabia than any other country in the world. And so, we're, you could argue that we're complicit in this, right? Um, this is part of the interconnection of the world that's hard to think about if you're a Christian. Like, what's our responsibility as Christians when this is going on in the world, and it just seems like it's so, so far away. What does it have to do with us? Well, it might have something to do with us, and it's messy, absolutely messy. And um, 
our, our hands are probably not clean. My hands are not clean uh, in this. And so there are, I saw some pictures the other day where um, they have these displays in certain cities around Yemen that just has fragments of armaments that have exploded there. And they just have displays of all the ones that's like, say, you know, made in the USA. And uh, it's hard to, hard to imagine how you explain that to them. How do you explain that to a child? Right? Um, how do you explain it to me? Right? Um, I'm sure that we think we're doing the right thing. And maybe we are. Um, but the Yemeni people right now are feeling uh, pretty much desperate, beyond desperate. So trying to love your neighbor as yourself is not easy. It's not easy. Um, and that's what the social principles have been about. Um, and it's a sobering way uh, to end, but um, it seems like maybe the right place to end because um, there's, there's work to do. And lots of days it's not easy to know what we should be doing. But the least we can be doing is opening our eyes and recognizing that loving your neighbor as yourself probably demands more than what I typically want to think it does. Even if I'm not sure what it entails, it probably entails more. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have called us to be part of your family. Uh, we confess that we are often overwhelmed trying to discern what it means to even begin to be faithful to the call that you've made on our lives to follow the way of Jesus. And so we pray that you might uh, enliven our imaginations, that you might give us courage and hope, that we might trust in your ways, and that we might trust that your ways truly lead to life. Pray, give you thanks for this group of people and their willingness to wrestle with the hard hard parts of discipleship, the hard parts of fallen way of Jesus. Pray you would, by your spirit, give us wisdom in the midst of our confusion. Um, and again, give us courage to ask the hard questions, trusting uh, in your spirit to lead us in that way that leads to life. We pray this through Jesus, who gives us life. Thanks, Phil. That's um, 